My name is Michael Hands. I'm the lead minister here. And the lady who brought the podium onto stage is actually my mum. And uh, she's awesome. <clears throat> Carrie Hands uh, was actually an elder when I was elected as lead minister. Some of you are aware of that she was part of the uh, board and council who gives spiritual direction to our church. And when people found out that me becoming lead minister meant that mum might have to step, well, actually had to step off elders, people go, could we... Like, could we find someone else to be lead minister then so she can stay? <laughs> Literally something that somebody said. So that was really encouraging. But what it does highlight is it honors uh, the, the woman who has given me life, has raised me. Uh, my mother has taught me how to lead. She's taught me how to love. She's taught me that women are just as capable at men as doing uh, everything that God has purposed them to do. And I just want to say real quickly, if you are a woman in this room, today's not just Mother's Day. Today is the day we want to honor you. Because not every woman in this room is a mother, either, by, uh, either can be a mother or is not yet a mother. And we just want to say that you, we know you are still given a heart to care and be compassionate and lead others. And our world today doesn't just need biological mothers. It needs spiritual women who are willing to see a generation become all that God has called them to do. So I know Mother's Day for some of us is not a moment of celebration. But I want to ask that today you might be honored that you would give your life and the beautiful picture and tapestry weaving together that God has done through grace to his story that others might be blessed because you are a woman of God. Thank you. Can we honor all the women in our church for who they are? Love to invite you to join us this Wednesday night. When I say us, I will not be here at 6.30. I will be looking after my son so Sarah can be here. Friends, would you join with me as we pray today? Gracious God, We've been so blessed by your word this year. Through Genesis, we saw your faithfulness and your heart. At Easter, we, we, we saw you redeem and restore. And in Ephesians, God, you're weaving us into your story. Telling us not only of, of your goodness and your greatness, but your closeness. How you want to be known. So God, open our hearts today. So many of us have walked into this room with burdens that you never longed for us to bear. With distractions that will pull our attention away from what you want to do. Still our hearts. God, I need you this morning. Speak as only you can. Less of me, more of you we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've, uh, I've missed traveling a lot. I've said this a couple times, but I remember fondly the days of flying. There are some people who hate flying. I am someone who loves to fly. Um, I always enjoyed traveling around Australia and the world when time and finances would permit. And I remember one moment where um, I'm, I'm one of those guys who I discovered the points programs last year. So I didn't know that every time you fly, you should assume and, and ask someone to give you points for spending money and flying. Why do I say that? Because every time I go to an airport, I've never, ever been admitted to or had membership in a flying club, no matter the amount of times that I've flown. 
I've always been that guy who's sitting outside the gate on his iPhone with a coffee, waiting hours for my plane to board. It's, it's, it's this sense of it's the part that I hate the most about flying, getting to the airport terminal. At first, it's romantic. But by the time that you realize that it's $10 for a cup of coffee, it becomes really, really arduous. One time, however, I was in this airport terminal and I was at Starbucks and I was lined up behind a gentleman. I was on my way back to Australia, stopping through Changi Airport in Singapore. And, and I heard this guy's voice in front of me and it was Australian. And he said, g'day, can I have a cappuccino, thanks? And I'm like, oh, you're Australian. And he turns around and said to me, you're Australian. And we bonded. He was about 45 years old. This was about five years ago for me. And he's like, I've been hoping to meet an Australian in the airport because I'm a bit lonely. I'm like, oh, well, you know, we should catch up. And he says to me this, this amazing moment. He turned and said, well, I'm actually flying first class. What are you flying? And I'm like, nice flex, man. I'm flying economy. He's like, oh, that's a shame. Hey, listen, I tell you what. Why don't I'll meet you at First Class Qantas Lounge in a little while, and you can come into the First Class Qantas Lounge with me. I get people in for free. And I'm like, this can't be real. Either this guy's an angel or he's a serial killer who's going to kill me. Right? And I actually texted my dad. I'm like, Dad, what do, you, what do you think I should do? Is this safe? He's like, Michael, you're 24. Do you think you could take him? I'm like, 100%. He's like, go to First Class Lounge with him. So it's great. So I end up going to First Class Lounge, and I, and I walk in, and I come up to the concierge desk, and I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm here to meet a guy named Trevor. And they page Trevor. And Trevor comes out to the front of First Class Lounge and says, Michael, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, no, this sucks. This is so awkward. He's like, I've actually just gone. I've, I've found someone that I know. I really want to spend time with them. And I'm like, of course, this was too good to be true. This is terrible. He said, so tell you what, this is, I'm so sorry about this. But what if you just came in and hung out by yourself? And you could have full access to first class lounge, but just like, are you okay if you don't sit with me? I just I want to chat with my friend. Now, I'm an introvert, friends. This is the dream. <laughs> I get full access because of someone I know, and I don't have to be friends with them inside the lounge. So I'm like, oh, that'll be fine. And I walk in, and he's like, so listen, you go up to the bar. You can order anything you want. They won't ask you to pay. You, waiters will come out. Wait, Man, I don't know if you've ever been to first class, but it is a different world. I don't know why people ever leave the airport when they're in first class. I walk up to the front counter, and I go, what's... And I look, there's nothing has a price on it because everything's free. So I ordered salmon with caviar and a T-bone steak and like gourmet broccoli. It was beautiful. And I'm like, oh, thank you for the meal. You know, uh, can I get anything else? And he's like, you can have whatever you want. And I'm like, this is the best. So I go sit down, and I'm ordering and cappuccinos, like I'm ordering just uh, heaps of coffees and they're just sitting there because I can. It was amazing. And I look around in my elevated position in the airport as we look down at those in the former life that I used to live in economy class and there are people around me who are grumpy. And I'm like, why are you grumpy? You get salmon as much as you want for free. You can have ice, just unlimited ice cream. I'm pretty sure they've got a massage parlor in here somewhere. And I'm seeing these men and these women who have open access to this lounge and it's almost like they've forgotten what it means to sit outside gate number three for three to four hours before your flight comes. They're grumpy. They take it for granted. They're not ordering any coffee. And I'm not even sure they're aware that salmon's on the menu. They're just sitting there engrossed in their phone or their newspaper. And there was a scandalous moment for me where almost something in me wanted to say, do you not remember what it was like? Do you not remember what it was like before you made it into first class? Now, friends, I probably will never be back in first class lounge ever again. 
But what it pertained to me was the revelation of how much of my airport experience changed because of what I had access to. And I wonder if you remember what it was like before you had access to the gospel. I wonder if you remember what it was like before you were invited in to the family of God. Over the last couple of weeks in the book of Ephesians, we've been studying in Ephesians 1 the character of God and how God wants us to know Him better. Last week, we unpacked Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, and this understanding where Paul unpacks the state of man, the response of God, and then the way of grace. And this week, we get seven to the second part of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul goes, this gospel this gospel you're welcomed into, the but God moment where God interrupts your story of darkness and breathes his, in his beautiful light, it should change everything for you. It should change everything. And for those of you who love a good structure today, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 highlights that the gospel changes three things for us. It should change community. It should change access. And friends, finally, it changes our identity. I wonder if you know the power of the gospel to change community, the power of the gospel that changes access, and the power of God that changes the gospel that changes identity. On that note, let's dive in. How does the power of the gospel change community? Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, now remember, after Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, Paul's, you know, expounded the gospel. Man is sinful, but God, who is rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. These are the words from last week. He builds on this moment, then finishing off saying, now you are God's masterpiece, purposed for good works that he intended before time for you to do. And he then launches into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, by starting with this. Therefore, he says, remember. Everyone say remember. Remembering is one of the most important practices in the life of a Christian. Remembering. Now, if you're new to faith today, or if you're new to Christianity today, why is remembering so important to us? Because when we remember, we appreciate the present because we remember the reality of the past. Sometimes we can get over familiar with where we are and we can glorify where we've been in a way where we forget the pain and the darkness of the story. Can you imagine if you went home today and you found as you stepped into your lounge room that, that your, your husband, your wife, your kids, your, your partner, the, the roommate you have or someone in your neighborhood had just gotten all of the toilet paper in your house and just spread it everywhere. They tear toilet paper at each other, they toilet paper towels, the, the chairs, the tables. They just done it to everything. If you had just lived through the last year of COVID-19, there should be a reaction in you to seeing such a waste of toilet paper. You would go, what on earth are you doing? If we go into lockdown tomorrow, you have just wasted gold. Why? Because in lockdown, what became the most precious commodity, for some reason, people's bowel movements exponentially increased during COVID. There's this sense where, where, where everyone went and got toilet paper. And so what would you say to them? Do you not remember? Do you not remember what it was like? Do not waste what we have. This is precious. Paul, for the first time in the book of Ephesians, gives the command, gives a command to the church in Ephesus. 
Up until now, there's been no commands. It's just been nice stories. It's been beautiful truths. It's been deep gospel realities. And for the first time, the thing, the first thing Paul asks the Ephesian church to do is, therefore, remember. Friends, today, I believe God is calling to every single one of us. It is time to remember. What does Paul ask them to remember? He asks them to remember where they've come from. It then gets a little confusing because he says, what I want you to remember, I want you to remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is a really weird name to go by. Hey, man, which club do you belong to? I belong to the circumcision club. It's like, yeah, good for you, bro. Don't talk to me ever again. Which is done in the body by human hands. What's Paul touching on here? Paul says, remember that there was a moment where you, the Ephesians, were uncircumcised, and there was a group of people who were circumcised. Now, this is bizarre, and this is weird, and if you have your teenagers in church and you haven't had the conversation with them yet, look forward to the drive home, because I'm not going to explain what circumcision is, circumcision is today. But I will explain why. Because the Ephesian church were made up of a group of people called the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were all those people in society who were not Jewish. The main way that people who were Jewish identified as as Jewish was that the men in the family were circumcised. And this was a practice adopted in Genesis by the family of Abraham, who when they made a covenant with God, God called them to be set apart, to have something which would reflect the intimate nature he wants to, relationship he wants to share with them. So they were called to circumcise all the men in the household. Now, this was a tradition that was passed down, not only through the line of Abraham, but through to the Jewish people. And it became a moment of national identity, that we are the circumcised people of God. This was less about anatomy, and it was more about promise. This was less about something that maybe culturally doesn't make sense to us today, and more about being marked as a set-apart holy people by God. But what would happen is that the Jews were set apart not to be a private club, In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, we find that Abraham was given a mandate that his family would be a blessing to the nations, that they would be the light of the world. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, in fact, this this family of Abraham grew to become the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 to 6, we read halfway down, although the whole earth is mine, God says, you, the Israelites, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God was asking these circumcised people to be was a kingdom of priests. A priest was man's representation before God and God's representation before man and a holy nation. The Israelite people were called to be an example to the world of what life with God could be like. But something went wrong. See, not only were they called to be an example, but these Israelite people, when they were disobedient, they would be oppressed and persecuted and invaded by other nations who had become known as the Gentiles. And as they were persecuted and oppressed, the Jewish people chose that they no longer wanted to be a blessing to other nations. They wanted to be exclusive to other nations. Those that God called to be an invitational example into the way of God became an inclusive club who called themselves the circumcision and everyone else is the uncircumcised Gentiles. What Paul is writing to in the Ephesian church is a context which is rife with racial discrimination. 
which is rife with powerful segregation, economically, religiously, culturally. And there is this big split in the church. Those who were Christians and Jews and those who were Christians and Gentiles because the Jews hated the Gentiles. Not because God told them to, but because the waywardness of the human heart is to erect barriers and segregate those whom the world has given us reason to oppress, marginalize, or ostracize. This is so pertinent that if a Jewish boy was to go and marry a Gentile girl, the Jewish community would conduct a funeral for him on the day of his wedding because he was now dead to them. Gentiles were seen as so other, so unholy, so impure. They were to be separated. And Paul writes this church of Gentiles and he's saying, do you realize that actually before Jesus, you were not just part of a segregated community. It was worse than that. He goes on and he explains. He says, you've got to remember that at that time before Jesus, you were not only separate from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise. Hear how Paul describes what it meant to be a Gentile without hope and without God in the world. Why does this grieve Paul? Why does it grieve the Gentiles? Because Israel has ultimately forgotten, sorry, Israel has ultimately forgotten their purpose. A guy named William Barclay says this, but we need to remember that in calling Abraham, he, God promised through his posterity to bless all the earth's families and that in choosing Israel, he intended her to become a light to the nations. Is there anywhere else in the gospel where people are called to be a light to the nations? The tragedy is that Israel forgot her vocation, twisted her privilege into favoritism and ended by heartily despising, even detesting the heathens as dogs. What do we see happen here? Israel takes their place of privilege in the kingdom of God and twists it to be a club of exclusion. And the Gentiles felt this weight powerfully. So what is Paul writing? He's saying, don't forget, that before Jesus, you were not involved in this community. This is not a good thing. But to the Gentile, he's saying, remember where you came from. Don't take for granted where you are right now. To be a Gentile in the ancient Jewish world was to be despised by the Jewish culture. And Paul writes to them and says, this is what it meant to be who you were before Jesus Why do you think he was writing this to the Ephesian church? Because in Ephesus right now, in this moment, their city was was segregated by racial, cultural, and religious tensions that were bigger than just Jew versus Gentile. They, They were oppressed by different socioeconomic status where people bonded together over the money they had in their bank account or the career they shared. And Paul is writing to a church of Gentile Christians saying, hey, remember how hard it was to exist within Jewish community before Jesus. Make sure that you do not do this same thing to others that was once done to you. You were called as Christians to be an example of the narrative and way of God, not an exclusion to the world. He's talking about a revolutionary way forward that if they could remember where they had come from, 
Maybe, just maybe, this community would be a radical case of belonging because everyone knew what it was like to be an outsider. Friends, I wonder if you know what it feels like to be excluded, what it feels like to be shut out, what it feels like to be on the outside of something. There are people who came to church today for the first time and they're wondering, do I fit? What does it mean to belong at New Life? I wonder if they would feel welcomed by you. I wonder if the way our systems, our culture, the way we interact, the way we talk would, no matter their race, no matter their background, no matter their religious background, no matter their social economic status, I wonder how well we would go at finding a place where people might belong. This is why Paul is calling them, hey, remember what it was like. He is challenging the Gentile community to remember the barrier. John Stott says that this, for only if we remember our former alienation, distasteful as it might be to some of us, shall we be able to remember the greatness of the grace which forgave and is transforming us. But more than that, friends, is on offer to every single person without discrimination. Not only is Paul challenging the Gentiles to remember from when they came, He's also challenging the Jewish culture as well. Paul was a Jew. And he's saying not that the way the Gentiles were treated was right, but he's saying this was actually a forsaking of the call and mandate of God. That to be part of God's kingdom is not part to be a part of God's club, where the only way in is if you look a certain way, behave a certain way, and do a certain thing. Actually, the church and the community of God should be the place of most radical belonging in the world. That we should confuse the world by the people who share community with each other here on Sundays. That people should look around and go, there are people of every race, every tribe, every language, every socioeconomic background. The CEOs don't gather together. The the laborers don't gather together. There is this intermingling and beautiful permeation of community here because of the revolutionary picture of the community of God that is being built here. How do we know this? What is the hope that we have in this? Because Paul goes on to say the way that we know we are now belonging and included is by this. The gospel doesn't just change community also changes access. Paul, sorry, I'll go back a couple to the slide before. Uh, Paul says this, he goes on and he says, for he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. What Jesus has done is stepped into the racial and cultural segregation that has separated humanity and said, by my blood and by my power, I will do now do a reconciling work amongst humanity. This is a controversial truth in a day and age that we live in where we are segregated by being a liberal progressive or a conservative right wing where we, we, we are judged by our job, our race, our culture, our social economic status. There seems to be a moment where Jesus comes in and says, actually by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who were far away, We brought close because Christ did not come to bring further segregation, but to bring unity and peace by giving us something greater that which we might be unified by. Not by our background, not by our demographic, but by our commonality and our Savior. For He Himself is our peace. Why? Because He has made two groups of people 
one and destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Paul highlights here that what God has done is he has set aside barriers that previously were erected between Gentiles and Jewish people. Back in those days, there were two main barriers that separated the Gentiles and the Jews. The first one was actually a physical barrier. If you were to go into the temple in Jerusalem, the Gentiles were only allowed into the outer courts and the Jewish people were allowed into the inner courts. And what Jesus came is when we see him die on the cross at Calvary, the curtain that separated the presence of God from the people of God was ripped into, upending the temple system and Christ overcame that which would cause racial segregation. He now said there is open, fettered access to every tribe, language, nature, culture and tongue to, the, to God as their father, their savior and their king. The second thing that Jesus removed was the power of the law to segregate. Back in those days, to to be a Jew meant that you were observant of the law, but the Jews also believed that the only way to be saved was through the law. That to be saved, you had to live the law perfectly, and only then were you a good Jew and also a good follower of God. This is why it's so crucial that Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law that we no longer live under the law as a way of salvation. We now live as people who have the law of morality, of being, of loving one another and loving God with our heart, soul, and mind as our way forward. But we no longer live through that as the way of salvation. The way of salvation comes through the cross of Jesus Christ by every person who wants to coming before Him saying, I choose to believe in you as my Lord and my Savior. So what had separated the temple and the law, Jesus Christ came now to tear down. Why? that he might create a new community. A new community and a better way forward. This is why Paul goes on to say his purpose in doing so was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Friends, the answer to racial tensions in our world is not our political opinions. It is the way of Christ. I remember once when I had a good fortune to chat to a lady named Auntie Jean, who was an elder in the indigenous community in Australia. And I said, Auntie Jean, help me understand what reconciliation needs to look like for Christians. What does it look like for us? And this is a Christian lady who's respected around Australia for her leadership. And Auntie Jean turned to me, she said, Michael, reconciliation will happen when black men and white men come together in repentance at the foot of Jesus Christ. And something in me broke then because I realized that, that what Jesus was hoping to do was implement something greater than culture, greater than race, greater than social or religious or gender background that would unify that which the world seeks to, to, to segregate and separate. See, what Jesus did by coming and dying in death on, on, on the cross at Calvary, he didn't make Gentiles Jewish. His hope wasn't to make Jewish people more Gentile. What this verse seems to suggest is that what Jesus did to bring reconciliation was instigate a new humanity. See, the early Christians would worship alongside each other, not because they were tolerating each other's cultural background, but because something unified them greater than that which would separate them. And it was this, that God had given them a new identity as new creations and a new humanity in Jesus Christ. 
which meant that before they were anything, they were sons and daughters of God. Friends, what is so key for us is to realize the church should be a revolutionary community where we confuse people by the way we love one another. Sometimes I go into church and there's this weird moment where people are like, I, I kind of like new life, but there's just not many people like me there. I like that small group, but there's just not many people like me in that small group. If you were to go to the early church, you would realize that there wasn't very many people like each other there. The most revolutionary attribute about the kingdom of God is not that we all look like each other, but that every tribe, every race, every language, every culture, every socioeconomic background is represented here in community. But more than that, they don't just tolerate each other, they identify as one. There is nothing more revolutionary to the gospel than someone who is close friends and is a loving brother and sister in Christ and towards someone else who has nothing in common with them other than that they share the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we look around here at New Life and all you see is people who look like you, have lives like you, sound like you and talk like you, then this is not a community that reflects the beautiful tapestry that should be the kingdom of God. That's why it was beautiful. On Baptism Sunday, we baptized people from China who, because they were in a community that reached out and offered them hospitality, discovered the gospel and power and peace of God. This is something we should celebrate. But the question it should challenge us with is that when we come to church, are we looking for people who will help us feel comfortable or for people who the only thing in common we have is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that we would love them in a way the world questions and points to a greater hope in Jesus? This is why this is such a revolutionary text because Jesus came, it continues, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. See, what Paul is saying to to both the Gentiles and Jews is this. There wasn't one group of people that were more in the kingdom of God before Jesus. Is that Jesus came to those who have a background that doesn't look like church, that doesn't look like religion, that doesn't look like faith, and said, you now get to become a part of this. He says, doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you now get to be called home. But then he also goes to the Jews and says, you also need the grace of Jesus Christ as well. Which means, friends, in the words of John Tyson, there is nothing in your past that can disqualify you from the grace of God. But to those of you who grew up in the church, there is nothing in your past that has pre-qualified you for the grace of God. I grew up in the church. You still need grace. We all need grace. And what segregated the early church was the idea that there was a new class system of Christian Jew and Christian Gentile. And what Paul says is, no, it's not Jew and Gentile, it's Christian. It's a follower of Jesus. And that is a revolutionary idea. Why? Because this new humanity doesn't just form a new community, friends. This new humanity now has access. This is, this is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. I used to work at an organization called Red, Fro- Red Frogs. And at Red Frogs, there was this uh, there was this stage where we used to DJ um, for schoolies every week. And uh, every week, not of the year, during schoolies. 
there was 25,000 young people that would rock up to schoolies, and then there would be about a couple thousand that would party at the stage. And when I first started Red Frogs, everything I wanted was to get a backstage pass to the stage so that I could go on and dance and hang out and have fun in front of thousands of teenagers. And as I gained more responsibility at Red Frogs, so too I gained a pass that meant at whatever time I wanted, I could walk in and just show my pass and then I could go up on stage and just dance around and pretend like I was cool for like 10 minutes and then walk back off stage. And it hit me after about seven years of having this access when I was talking to someone who was their first year in Red Frogs. And I'm like, oh, I'm just heading to the stage. And like, you get to go to the stage? I'm like, yeah, it's no big deal whatever. And they're like, you're the coolest. And I was just trying to play it down. I didn't think it was that amazing anymore because I'd had access for so long. And what Paul does at the end of this passage isn't just try and weave together a vision for a new community. He wants to tell this new community that every single one of you have access and some of you have forgotten the revolutionary, beautiful truth that that is. To finish talking about the new community, Paul says this, this community has been brought through, for through him, through Jesus, we both now, Gentile and Jew, Chinese and American, Australian and New Zealand, <laughs> both have access. Grace of God runs thick for you, friends, to the Father by one spirit. This word access in Greek is like the word as if you had access to the imperial throne room. That like you have the key to the throne room and you can go in whenever you want to see the emperor, but you don't go in to just see the emperor. You go in to see the king of kings. And to this king of kings, it tells us, you don't say your majesty, you say father. And some of us have forgotten that what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary has now given us access. I was stressed this morning. I was like, God, I don't know about this sermon. I don't know about the rhythms and, and you know, it's a, complex passage and we talk about circumcision and I don't want people to leave the church and, and I was worried and I just sensed God be like aren't you going to talk about access this morning I was like yeah and I just sensed God remind me right now Michael the king of kings is on the throne of eternity and you have access what do you want from your father and I just went before God and I was like first thing I had to say is God I'm sorry and, and then just started to pour out my heart. Hey, if anything could happen this morning, could we see this? Oh God, I would love to know this. And just this comfort came over me where I realized that the Father in heaven was on the throne and he had sent his son to give me access in a way that no one in humanity had ever had access before. You see, before Jesus came, the only way to access the presence of God was once a year on the day of Yom Kippur when the high priest would go into the temple, the holiest of holy places, and he would stand in the presence of God and offer sacrifices for the atonement of the people of God. That was the only time that they could have access to the throne room and the presence and what Jesus did on, the, on, on, the, on that hill at Calvary, what he did in that moment was he removed the need for just one person to go in on behalf of all because he was, became our great high priest. He became the true and better sacrifice so that no matter where you are right now, friends, you can have access to the throne room of the Father in heaven. And some of us are sitting in first class, grumpy. And there are people who are going, do they know they get to talk to him? That this is their every day. Right now, friends, the Heavenly Father is leaning in to you, to you, wondering what it is you want to say. 
Because this he gave his son's life to achieve. So that we might be a new community that confuses the world. That we might have an access that the world doesn't understand. But more than that, friends, that we might stand upon and we might have an identity. The gospel just doesn't change community. It doesn't just change access. It also changes our identity. I know some of you are like, he skipped through a lot of slides, a lot of quotes. That's because we're wrapping up and we're not going to go long today. In Jesus' name, everyone said. God gives us a new identity. How does he finish the passage to the Ephesians? Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners. You are no longer just strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Paul says to a group of Gentiles who previously to this moment would walk into a Jewish community and they would feel ostracized, they would feel despised, they would feel pushed out and says, no, 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 now you are no longer foreigners. Now you're family. Now you're no longer ostracized. Now you are citizens of heaven. If people want to flout to you, well, I'm a citizen of Israel, you can look them in the eye and say, friend, my card trumps yours. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. And Christ then goes on to say something else. He says, in this identity, you need to know, I'm going to build something upon the identity I won for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cornerstone will not be culture. The cornerstone will not be opinion. The cornerstone will not be right-wing Christianity or left-wing Christianity. The culture will not be race. The culture will not be defined by other people's socioeconomic backgrounds. No, the culture will be set by a chief cornerstone. See, more important than a foundation in building the temple was the cornerstone. Because on the cornerstone, you would line up the walls of the temple and everything was built around and guided by wherever the cornerstone was placed. So when they call Christ the chief cornerstone, what they're saying is we will build our church. We will build community. We will build this new life, this new identity based on taking our beat, taking our model, taking our life by influence by the chief cornerstone himself. His name is Jesus. And then when Jesus becomes our chief cornerstone, God doesn't just build a new community. He doesn't just say you have a new identity today. He doesn't just give you access but he is building a new temple. It finishes and says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In the ancient days, the presence of God existed in the holy of holies, existed in the temple. But Christ came and has now built a new temple, is building a new temple. And it is not a building of human hands, friends. It is not a geographic location. It is a people. And He's placed His presence and His Holy Spirit amongst this temple to be experienced and encountered daily. I want you to turn and look at the person next to you. You and that person. I just saw a husband and wife kiss. It was really weird. (laughs) Shout out to Heath and Sammy down the back. That person you just looked at is being built together with you to be God's new temple. That sometimes we have these individual ideas like my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit by myself. No, we are the temple of God. We carry 
the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. God has not called us into isolation, but into community. And that together, when we gather and when we're scattered, we carry the very presence of the Holy Spirit with us. Why? So we might meet a people. We might go out into a world and we might be an example, not an exclusion. That when we go into the workplace and someone's decisions or someone's background or someone's culture or someone's race offends us or challenges us, we know that there is something that seeks to unify us greater than that which would disunify us. That when we're in church and there's someone that's like, I voted for ScoMo and we're like, well, I'm voting for Anthony Albanese. We don't go, well, I gotta go to a different church. We're like, hey, isn't it beautiful that there's something that unifies us greater than that which would disunify us? His name is Jesus. That when someone's going, well, you know, I'm white and this other person's got a different skin color to me and, and there's this language at the moment about which lives matter and all this stuff. We, we, we enter into that discussion fully and vigorously, but we also as Christians realize that before I am Australian, I am a son of God. Before I am from New Zealand, I am a son of God. Before I am from China, I am a son or a daughter of God. Before I am from Botswana, I am a son or a daughter of God. And that we need to be a part of a reconciliation of all humans. And guess what? The kingdom of God isn't going to look white. It's not going to look like your culture. It's going to look like an amalgamation of every tribe, every language, and every tongue coming together in beautiful tapestry unity as we worship and praise the King of God. That's what our church should be. That's what the church should look like. This should be a place where people find reprieve, find peace from the hostility in the world as we see God bind us together to be His children, to be His new community that has new access and now a new identity in the kingdom of God. So friends, would you stand? And I finish with this final thought. Who are you running from being in community with? Who have you drawn up walls of exclusion when the gospel says we need to be radically inclusive? That here people can belong before they believe. When was the last time you took privilege of your access? When you came before the throne room of the Father in heaven and said, God, you created a new humanity and now all of these people have open, fettered access to the throne room of the Father in heaven. When was the last time you called upon the name of the Lord? Friends, when was the last time you operated from your core identity as a son and a daughter of God? Because when the world challenges my second identity, as a male, as a white, Australian, Anglo-Saxon, whatever, that secondary identity, I remember nothing can challenge my primary identity. Nothing can change the fact that I'm called, that I'm chosen, that I'm a son of God. That transcends every culture, every religion, every socioeconomic background, friends, and we are unified. What would it look like for us to be a place where we seek to join Jesus in bringing down every wall of hostility and exclusion that we might be a community that reflects the kingdom that he came to create? Let's pray together. So gracious God, I thank you your gospel doesn't just change our own relationship with sin. It changes the way we do community. It changes the way we see our access and changes our identity. May we stand on this truth. May we celebrate this truth. And may we be like a whirlpool, of gravitational pull that others long to be a part of what you're doing here because you are good. We follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.